Welcome to the All In Gospel Bible Study. Each week, we move chapter by chapter through the Bible towards a comprehensive understanding of what the Bible teaches. All In Gospel is recorded live in White Bear Lake, Minnesota, featuring Dr. Sean Dickers. You can support this broadcast by subscribing or donating at anchor.fm slash allingospel or visit the allingospel.com website. All right, Leviticus 27 tonight. This is the last chapter of Leviticus. We've only done last chapter three times in this Bible study. Genesis, Exodus, and now Leviticus. So we get to say goodbye to Leviticus. Um, in that sense, I want to give just a, a reminder overview because good teaching has repetition. So in Leviticus, remember in Genesis, we saw the creation there is a God and there's an order to creation. In Exodus, we saw that that God actually has a plan, an interventionary plan for people on this planet. And in this chapter, we see God's ideal for worship and what it looks like to walk and live with God. And the depth of Leviticus, I think, stands apart so far in the Bible from Genesis and Exodus. Though the narratives are nice when you're a kid, when you're an adult and you're trying to wrestle with how do we live and how do we serve God and how do we walk with God, Leviticus is a really powerful book. And at some point in Leviticus, every time I go through it, I feel convicted. I feel like I'm not doing what I could be doing, and it helps me change my life to be more like God every time I go through it. So it's a book of worship. It's a deep book. It's just precious. And it, it always strikes me that people that are new to the faith or their first time reading through the Bible or even people that are trying to challenge the faith, for some reason they pick on Leviticus. Like it's this horrible book full of all these horrible things. But we've just went through the whole book and there's not a lot of horrible things here. It's God's plan for people. And that plan sometimes butts heads with some things that we think it should be. The very beginning of the book, it had the sacrifices. There was, help me with this, the burnt offering, sin offering, wave offering, trespass, sin and trespass, burnt, peace was in the middle. And then what's the second one? I think the heave and the wave was how you gave the offering. The grain offering. So it was burnt grain, grain fellowship, and then peace, and then the sin and trespass offerings. And then came how the priests should behave, and they covered all the things that were kosher and things that weren't kosher. Don't eat roadkill. And then the law for the people of Israel that the priests should be administering or making happen in Israel. Then atonement in chapter 16. And then the holy law or what people should do out of their hearts came after atonement. And then how people should live their lifestyle or how they should be kosher out of the fullness and the kind of the appreciation for God from the heart. And then, of course, of course came the Sabbaths at the end of the book, which were... Uh, the festivals, and there was Yom Kippur. Oh, I'm not going to remember all these. There's too many. There's seven festivals. There were the spring festivals and the autumn festivals. And between the spring and the autumn, there was this season where they were supposed to go to work in the fields and get to work and do the harvest. And so you had the sacrifices and the Sabbaths, the kosher priests and the kosher people, the holy law that the priests administer and the holy law that people should live out of the goodness of their heart or out of appreciation, and in the middle was atonement. So the book of Leviticus is a carefully constructed document um, of revelation in how to do this, and it's been designed for us to do it. Leviticus takes away what has been the eternal mystery for humanity, and that is what God wants from us. And I think that's amazing. If you look at philosophy and everything else in this theology and the mystery of it. Leviticus takes away the mystery that if you do what Leviticus says, you're doing what the God of the universe wants you to do. And that's pretty amazing. So, for those of you on Zoom right now, we have two people walking by our house with a large box in their hands and they just waved in our window. And now they're awkwardly walking away. <laughs> like, oh my goodness, those people were in that house <laughs> together. 
Um, if I had to look back through all of Leviticus, I think one of the big takeaways for me was this idea of righteousness and sin and abiding with God and to be righteous is what we do if we love God. And it's how we do things if we love God. And what's amazing is that same law that God gives in Leviticus is the thing that people want to take, take issue with. Um, and the image of this idea that the one who makes the law says this is how it should be, and that primary question that people have when they challenge the faith is why is there evil and bad things? Why do, all the, why do people do all these bad things? And isn't that then God's fault? And, it, and I, I like, and in honor of Ravi Zacharias, one of his images was, you know, if Ford Motor Company makes a vehicle and gives you a handbook on how to drive it, and then you ignore the handbook and do whatever you want and crash into a barn, you don't blame Ford Motor Company for it. So because God made a creation and said, here's how to do it, and gave us a handbook for it, it's not really God's fault when all these bad things happen. In fact, God despite that, provides the insurance policy on that and covers us even when we screw up and we don't read the manual and we don't do it the right way. So I think that that's just one of those ideas that's Leviticus. So in tw chapter 26, we dealt with the covenant that God made at the end of all this. God's going to give his blessing in this extraordinary way if Israel does these things. If Israel doesn't do these things, he's going to give them extraordinary curses. Either way, God's power and glory is going to be shown through the nation of Israel. And this is a blessing and a curse throughout history. So if they do it right and they follow the instruction manual, they just got a brand new Mustang, if I could continue the metaphor. And they're going to be able to, as a nation, have exceeding wealth and power and speed as they do things in life. If they ignore the manual, they got an Etzel and they, or something to that effect. Anyways, I'm done stretching that metaphor. In chapter 27, we're going to dedicate things to the Lord. And this is an amazing thing. Verse 1, Now the Lord spoke to Moses, saying, Speak to the children of Israel. This is the last speak to the children of Israel. Goodbye, speak to the children of Israel. And say to them, When a man consecrates by a vow certain persons to the Lord, according to your valuation. So it's believed that chapter 7, 27 was its own scroll at one point. Traditionally, this isn't necessarily part of Leviticus. That said, it is now. And if you believe that the Holy Spirit moves through all of history, not just when, you know, as things got assembled through history, that that was part of the Holy Spirit's work too, then this is kind of an interesting appendix or addendum at the end of Leviticus. And I think there's a reason for it. So the book I just described has a nice tight kind of format to it. And then this little extra thing doesn't have a complementary thing at the beginning, so it messes with the chiastic form, which is why it's believed to be an appendix. That said, it's icing on the cake. If you do all these things, the result isn't that you are somehow a, a supplicant or an oppressed person living under this horrible law of God. The idea is if you do these things, you're super happy about it. And if you're abounding with this gratefulness to the Lord, you're, there's going to be people that want to do something with that. And I think most of you have felt this before. Um, so there's this idea that when a man consecrates a vow, certain to of uh, by a vow certain persons to the lord according to your valuation um, this is referred to back in leviticus 7 verse 16 if you're taking notes if the sacrifice of his offering is a vow or voluntary offering then do this this and this remember that back in that way at the beginning of the book here we it gets explained what that is that there's people that say oh i love the lord so much i want to give my daughter to the service of the temple or I want to give my son, or I want to give my own time to the temple. And the law gets this kind of bad rap, but here we see an image of if the law is getting held, there's going to be people that want to give more to the Lord because they're so blessed by it. It's actually fair and gracious for people to do this. So the point here is a willing heart, and I want to point that out too. Uh, this is not a have to or anything of the sort. It's assumed that this service or this vow is getting made by the person. Uh, the consecrate piece is in the Hebrew pala. It means to set something aside. We've seen the word before. In fact, to set it aside is a marvelous or a wondrous thing uh, being distinguished or a distinguished or marvelous vow to the Lord. This is the same word that got used back in Genesis 18:14 with Sarah, which is our little thing that Catherine made for us. It's the same word, marvelous, that's getting used there. But the word consecrate here and marvelous 
there it's a really it's not it doesn't feel like the same thing at all in the English but in the Hebrew it actually is it's a wonderful vowel that people make so when people decide to make a wonderful vowel or a marvelous vowel it's something that people should admire and look at in Genesis 18:14 Sarah said is anything too marvelous for the Lord is there anything too wonderful for the Lord and at the appointed time I'll return to you according to the time of life and Sarah shall have a son. And the idea is, no, there's nothing too marvelous for the Lord. And from our worship standpoint, at the very end of Leviticus, there's nothing that we can give to the Lord that's too wonderful or too marvelous. That these kinds of vows are actually regarded as valuable by God. So you do it by a vow, which is nadir, um, which is a singular, uncommon vow. So if you put consecrate by a vow together, it's a wondrous, uncommon vow for the Lord. So this is above and beyond, singularly wonderful, singularly different, and people say, I'm going to do this for the Lord. And I think we do this a lot, especially when we first get saved. I'm going to commit this to the Lord. I threw away all my music albums that were secular, and I'm going to do these things. And God says, no, those things are valuable, and if you make those vows, you should do them. But that thrill of the heart should be what motivates this last chapter. It's a serious thing when you make a vow. It has to be done in God's law. If you make a vow, you need to do it. Um, so it's not something you just get all excited about and then it fizzles away because God doesn't look good on that. It's something you get excited about and then you follow through on it. So once you start doing this, it's natural to say, how can I do more for the Lord? Because you got the festivals, you got the feasts, you got the sacrifices, you got atonement. And then you say, what more can I do? And how can you do it? And that's a good place to be in life. A certain person is nefesh. It means a soul or a life. It's more than just like your daughter that we saw with Jephthah when he vows to give his daughter away. And this is why we think that vow that they use in Judges 11 is the same idea of this chapter right here. He didn't kill his daughter. He gave her to the temple. So Jacob makes the same kind of vow in Genesis 28. So these vows were already getting made. Um, Jacob vows, if you remember, to be God's servant for the rest of his life if he can help him get away from his lame uncle, his lame uncle. So he vows, uh, he makes a vow to a person, an option when a family is poor, they can do this. Um, if you can't support everyone you have in your family, you can donate kids to the temple and they will pay them for that employment. Um, and you can do things like that. So generally speaking, as we keep going on this, I'm setting all this up because it sounds a little bit like you're selling people into slavery. And that's not what this is if you look at those words. This is a unique, marvelous vow to commit to the ministry to commit people in your household to the ministry because you love the Lord so much. It is not necessarily that. And that has a value, and the value is determined by roughly a 40-year work life because their lifespan wasn't as long. People died quicker. You had about 40 years of work time, and that's how they're going to base this. Um, and notice that in this, we're not just talking about Levites. The priesthood stuff was earlier in Leviticus. This is for any tribe, anybody. So it's not just Levites that serve in the temple. It's Levites and anyone who's made a vow from any of the other tribes, including Gentiles, could do this. So even Gentiles back then, prior to Jesus, we could go in and say, we'd like to serve in the temple, and we'd like to be part of the ministry. All right, verse 3. I know that was a long setup, but I hope that helps with clarity on this part. If your valuation is of a male from 20 years old up to 60 years old, that's the 40-year gap, then your valuation shall be 50 shekels of silver, according to the shekel of the sanctuary. If it is a female, then your valuation shall be 30 shekels. We'll come back to the male-female thing. And if from five years old up to 20 years old, then your valuation for a male shall be 20 shekels, and for a female, 10 shekels. And from it, a month old, a month-old baby up to five years old, then your valuation for a male shall be five shekels of silver, and for a female, your valuation shall be three shekels of silver. And from 60 years old and above, if it's a male, your valuation shall be 15 shekels, and for a female, 10 shekels. But if he is too poor to pay for the valuation, then he presents himself before the priest, and the priest shall set a value for him according to the ability of whom vowed the priest shall value him. So this is either icing on the cake when you read Leviticus, like, wow, this is a super neat policy, and you delight in what God's doing here, or this is a huge stumbling block for people wait a second, God values males and females differently, and you can really get caught up on the gender thing. I'll give you a couple things that I hope ameliorate the stumbling block so that you can enjoy the icing on the cake. 
first after all the things that God has done for Israel to give yourself to ministry is a reasonable thing for people to do. This is a joyful thing for people to do. In Romans 12, it's a reasonable thing to give service to the Lord. So that's the icing. That's the amount of time we have. And if you think of it as a gift, first and foremost, and that, that very last line, the, the priest values the person doing that, then that's the main point of this passage. The shekels, of course, are the value of a person based on their physical strength in an agrarian culture. And I usually don't culturally contextualize, but I am on this one. If the primary work of the priests is to butcher cattle and lamb that are coming into the temple sanctuary by the hundreds, if not thousands, as Israel gets bigger, the primary work they have in the temple is moving these cattle and slopping the blood all over the place. And the, Le the Levites did not have women do that work. So at that particular business... They had other things that women could do, but the primary thing they needed help with was butchering and moving meat and hauling things and keeping bulls that were angry under control. So the different values then have a very utilitarian element, and they don't put an actual value on the person. They put a value on the service, and we see that at the very end, which is they shall set a value for him according to the ability of him who vowed. So the ability, the, the, the degree to which they're able to do the heavy lifting, literally, is the degree to which they have value, and they're looking at that. The value, then, is not intrinsic to the person. It's, it's based on their ability to do things. It's not based on the class, the money those people have. It's not based on what tribe or what family they come from. It's really just based on their work, not their intrinsic worth. And we know that that's true in verses 6 and 7. And if you take a careful look at that, you'll notice that they put a value on babies who can't do any work at all. In fact, if you're a month old, you're a liability to the Levites. You cost them labor. So somebody has to take care of you. Yet they still put value on a baby here, even though the baby is a net loss for work. Does that make sense? So when you think of that and you think, oh, okay, there's something here that there is a value on every person. The priest shall value anyone who wants to be committed to the Lord, even if it's their parents committing th to them. So even babies then have an ascribed value, and that's the first time in human history anywhere in any kind of document or ancient manuscript that we've seen, it's the first time you ever see an egalitarian value put on all of humanity to put value on every human life, this is the first time we really see that in an actual codified law of a society. And I think that's pretty cool. That's icing on the cake. Wow, everyone has value, even babies. It's not common to do that amongst the cultures all around them. And I've, I mention this a lot. If you do any research on pagan cultures, they did not value babies. They did not value females. They didn't put any value on any of If you couldn't serve the way they needed you to serve, you had no value. And this is true all the way up into some current cultures where there's things like human trafficking going on. We still have groups of people that put zero value on certain human lives, and they treat other people horribly. So the Jews were the first to codify the idea that everybody has intrinsic worth. The question is, they also say that that worth has to do with their ability to do certain kinds of work. Right? So it's both. Everyone's equal, but everyone's not equal at the same time. It's a tough concept to get your head around. There's an essential pr principle then that's rooted in basic theism and moral laws, and that is that people own their ability to do their own work. And when you give that ability to the temple, that ability has value to it that may vary. If I'm a handicapped person, I might not be able to do as much as somebody who's not handicapped. The key point here, though, is but I still have value. And God's willing to pay that price on any human life that wants to vow themselves to God. And that's completely amazing. Even princes do this, 2 Samuel 15, 8, when Absalom is, uh, gives himself to the temple for a period of time, he actually gives himself as a bondservant to the temple. And he was a prince, right? David's son. So families would then do this. They could um, redeem people back and forth. So all these shekel prices were redemption price for the labor they gave. In other words, you're not a slave to the temple forever. You are giving work that has this amount of value to it. And that value wasn't necessarily, it seems like it says, because if you're too poor to pay for your valuation. So when I go to the temple to give my work, it sounds like I pay to do the work. Do you see that? 
So this is an odd thing. That's not the temple priest paying the person for their value. It's the person that goes to the temple has to pay for it. So seemingly, this is another way to kind of frame this, the money works in reverse. This isn't that men are worth more than women. It's that men have to pay more than women, right? That they're actually worth less in that respect. So their labor has value to it that God's going to say, wow, if you're going to give me a 20-year-old male's labor, that's worth a lot of money, and we're going to ascribe value to that because they can lift the bulls, they can haul the sheep around, they can take Fluffy out, they can do the gross gory work for me, and that has a certain value. But they have to, it sounds like, they have to pay it when they arrive. They pay for their own value or give it. The reason why they ascribe worth to this is because I could say, I want to vow a year of my labor to the temple, and then I would just pay the shekels, and I'd go back home and work. But I gave a year of my labor back to the temple. Does that make sense? So you'd make a, a financial donation to the temple, but you would actually physically go home and work, but you gave a year of your labor away. So you could do that with different age groups, and the priests would say, okay, well, we'll take that gift, and we'll just put a, a price tag on it. And we know that because you could then redeem that back. So you could start working for the temple and then say, I don't want to finish out my 20 years that I vowed, so I'll just pay out the rest of my 10 years. And you could, your family could buy you back out of that service. So that value gets ascribed up front, um, and they're valuing the work, not the person. Okay? I think it's cool that God recognizes our spoken word. Um, and God blesses those spoken vows. So this kind of vow, this commitment to ministry or service, has an extreme value to God, and he puts value on it. And I thought that was another neat way to look at this. And at, and at dinner I said, you make marriage vows, you make uh, baptism vows, and you make this kind of vow we're talking about now, this vow to say, I want to give a little more to the kingdom. I want to do work for God's service. So those vows are essential, Numbers 32, 30, verse 2. If a man makes a vow to the Lord or swears an oath to bind himself by some agreement, he shall not break his word. He shall do according to all that proceeds out of his mouth. It's amazing that when we speak, God actually puts, works that vow into law. So once we open our mouths and say things, we should be careful with what we say because God actually treats those words as real once they happen. Ecclesiastes 5.5, 5, Solomon recommends, it's better to not make vows than to make a vow and not pay it because that's not good. So we need to think about what we say, think about what we promise. So people could give on top of their sacrifices. They could not just donate people, they could donate things too, and that's where the chapter goes. Um, and notice that there's no substitution prices put on things. You give something to the temple and you don't really get it back, well, we'll see the rule. If it's an animal that men may bring as an offering to the Lord, all that anyone gives to the Lord shall be holy. And shall be holy here means now the Lord owns it. He shall not substitute or exchange it, good for bad or bad for good. And if, at all, if he at all exchanges animal for animal, then both it and the one exchange shall be holy. Okay, let's understand these verses. Again, this is voluntary. You don't have to do this. But if you do it, something that's not demanded, if the Spirit just moved people to give their favorite fluffy sheep, you can't then go back the next day and say, actually, I don't want to give that sheep. I want to give this one. And when they say good for bad, bad for good, one makes a lot of sense. Maybe you gave your nicest sheep that's good for breeding and you have second thoughts the next day and you want to give a second tier sheep. You don't get to trade good for bad, but you don't also get to trade bad for good. Once you give that bad sheep, maybe you're like, oh, I got a better one I can give to the Lord. And think of the heart that that would take. Like I found a better sheep. I want to give this one too. The rule then is you give both of those sheep to the Lord. So you just give double. That's fine. You give double. But once you've given it to the Lord, it's holy. It's the Lord's sheep. You don't get to, there's no, there's no take backs. No returns. You can't go into the return counter and do that. And you can't swap them out. If it's an unclean animal, animal which they do, do not offer as a sacrifice to the Lord, then he shall present the animal before the priest. The priest shall set a value on it, whether it's good or bad. As you, the priest, value it, so it shall be. But if you want at all to redeem it, then you must add one-fifth to your valuation. So you can give animals to the Lord that are unclean like a pig. And the priest then doesn't take it into the temple because it's an unclean animal, but the priest would say, you know, I'll give that pig's worth five shekels. We can, you know, we can give it away to this family that needs some food and whatever. And so the, the priest can monitor this gift giving in that kind of a way too. 
and, and basically whatever value you set on it is the value. So priests can then ascribe value even though there's no code or rules. This kind of covers everything. This is goodwill giving you a receipt for your gift that you're giving. We all know what that is. We all give to goodwill. Yeah, okay. So someone could dedicate even if it's not used on the altar. Verse 14, when a man dedicates his house to be holy to the Lord, boy, you can dedicate your own house. Then a priest shall set a value for it, whether it's good or bad, and as the priest values it, so it shall stand. So the first appraisers in human history were the priests. I think that's cool. If he who dedicates it wants to redeem his house, he has to add a fifth of the money on the valuation of it, so it shall be his. So if you want to take something back you gave to the priest, you're going to pay 20% more on that thing. So if they value it at 100000 then you pay 120000 to get the house back. In other words, don't give things to the Lord that you're going to take back. It's a rule that's put in there to discourage that kind of thing. I love that real estate appraisers are were first priests. There's an important role in society when you ascribe value to things. It helps the economy tick. So you have butcher priests being the butchers. They're the bakers. They're the lawyers. They're the judges. They're the teachers. They're the doctors. We've seen that they're the civic health experts. They do Remember, they do mold inspections in Leviticus. They're the calendar keepers and have to keep track of all the Jewish math for how to keep these weird calendars. They're the musicians in the temple. And there are now, we, we give them another job, they are the appraisers of the society. It seems like the Levites do a lot of the white-collar work and even some of the butcher kind of physical labor in this society, and they kind of do all of these things. And because they do all of these things, they can really take anybody into the temple and put them to work somewhere, right? Especially if somebody comes in and says, I want to serve in the temple, and they say, well, you can't really, you can't really handle the bowls when we sacrifice them, but you can go do the home inspections, and you can do that, and you can be disabled and do some of these roles that are in there. So you give your house, you give your property. Um, another thought, and this isn't my own, this is one of the commentaries, I just love this thought. If we give our house to the Lord, and now it's God's property, ask yourself, what's in your house? If you give your life to the Lord, and it's now the Lord's property, and it's been ascribed as holy, what do you put in your life? And you think of this idea, because I know people that when they first get into a house, they anoint it with oil, they pray over each room. I think that stuff's really cool. But then three months later, what kind of movies are sitting on the shelf? What kind of books are in the library? What kind of stuff is happening in that house that's God's? Do you just bring a bunch of garbage and, and sewage into God's house and leave it in the middle? Or do you treat it like it's God's house? And this idea that you give something like your house to the Lord is kind of interesting. And what would God want to have happen in a house that is his house? Because I imagine people would still live in these houses. They'd just say, hey, if the Levites need a place to stay, if you need a, you know, a hostel, like our house is an open door. And I know a lot of Christians that are kind of like this with their house. Our house is for hosting. Our house is for ministry. Um, and if you're doing that kind of thing, then you should be treating that house like it's God's house. If you prayed that way, you made that vow, then it should be treated that way, and it should act that way. We'll keep going. I'll read a big chunk here. If a man dedicates to the Lord part of his field as a position, then your valuation shall be according to the seed for it. So not by the acre, it's by the seeds that that land will handle. That's an interesting way to do value. A homer of, of barley seed shall be valued at 50 shekels of silver. Interestingly, one bag of barley seed is worth a man's life. I don't know if you caught the, the 50 shekels. So these are nominal prices that they're putting on things. These aren't like you have to pay hundreds of thousands of dollars to, for a person. Uh, these are just kind of token amounts. Um, but on the, the barley or the seed, that would be a, a pretty solid price on that. If he dedicates his field from the year of Jubilee, according to the valuation, it shall stand. But if he dedicates his field after the Jubilee, then the priest shall reckon to him the money due according to the years that remain till the year of Jubilee and he shall be deducted from your valuation. And if he who dedicates the field ever wishes to redeem it, then he has to add one-fifth of the money on, of your valuation to it, and it shall belong to him. But he does not want to redeem the field, and if he has sold the field to another man, it shall not be redeemed anymore. But the field, when it was released in the Jubilee, shall be holy to the Lord as a devoted field. It shall be a possession of the priest. So here's where we see that the priests do own fields, and they eventually, over time, get land in each of the 12 tribes that they can use for the temple and for the priesthood. 
If a man dedicates to the Lord a field which he has bought, which is not the field of his possession, <laughs> so he sells a field that's not his. Does this make sense? Or you sold your land in the 50 years, the 49 years of Jubilee, so it's, and then you sell that land to the temple. Okay, it's got to get back to the original tribe at some point. So the tribe of Dan cannot take the tribe of Nabal, Naphtali's territory by reselling and regifting things. Um, so it doesn't work like that. And you, I think stealing would be hard because they actually do have ownership rights. So, And the priests are supposed to work all that stuff out. So the gifts of land are basically temporary. Everything goes around the year of Jubilee. Jubilee, everything goes back to that original family. Um. <laughs> when I got to the land thing, it struck me, and some churches do this. If you've ever seen a thermometer campaign where the church needs X amount of money for something, and they put the thermometer on the wall, I always get snarky when I see those. But because one of the experiences Steph and I had when we first got married, we were searching for churches, and we went to, went to one church, and they taught the word for like five minutes, and the rest of the time they talked about all the different ways we could give to their campaign. And the pastor from the pulpit talked about where we could give our retirement funds, we could give family jewelry. So if you've got jewelry in the family, you can give that. You could give stocks and bonds, cash, cash equivalents. You know, you could do those kind, and you could give all these different formats to the church. And we just kind of left going, wow, that was, that felt icky. And so I'm reading through this, and I'm seeing like, well, you can give your time to the church. You can give your kids time to the church. You can give... Uh, animals to the church, additional sacrifices. You can give your fields to the church, and you start seeing, wait, this kind of reads like one of those lists. And I think what's there is, first of all, I don't know if that should be what you teach from the pulpit, right? But there is this idea that if you love the Lord, you want to be part of what God's doing in his kingdom. And if the priests are growing grain on your field, and they're feeding people in the temple and in the temple in the Levite network, you feel like you're you're participating in it. And when you go, you drive home and you say, yeah, that back 40, the temple's using that for the next five years. And that's what we're doing as a family. And you teach your kids how you give to the church. And you think that sounds really cool. It doesn't make sense in a worldly sense, but if you love the Lord and you want to be part of what's going on, it happens. So everything we do and everywhere we spend our time and everything we own, even our homes, even Fluffy, God puts a value on all of these things. And the degree to which we give and dedicate things to the Lord God actually sees that as valuable. And that's a little different than the thermometer campaign. That's God saying, anything you want to give to the Lord, the Lord appreciates that, and the Lord likes it. And I think it's really natural. It's natural when you appreciate the teaching of God's word that you say, how can I help with that? And how can I be a part of that in a more significant way? That's a natural outpouring of somebody who's being blessed. And I think that's where you see this. And it's at the end of Leviticus for a reason. God put it here as an addendum. It is something that you do after all of this other stuff is happening. You know, you're doing the basics, you're following the law, you're living, you're walking worthy, you're living a righteous life, and then you have this heart of just, man, I just want to give more because I'm so blessed by what God's doing. So, <laughs> and then we get to rules because God knows the human heart. He knows that we like to give things that aren't ours, really, in this first place. So in verse 26, I hope you read this with the same humor I, I do. Remember in Exodus, all the firstborn animals were the Lord's, even the firstborn sons in the family, they belong to God. So if I want to keep my firstborn son, I have to pay the temple because I got to buy or redeem my son back from the Lord. Remember all that, those rules? So, but the firstborn animal of the, but the firstborn of animals, which should be the Lord's firstborn, no one shall dedicate. You don't dedicate something that's not yours. Whether it's an ox or a sheep, it's the Lord's. You can't give what you don't own. And even if it's an unclean animal, then he shall redeem it according to your valuation and shall add one-fifth to it. Or if it's not redeemed, then it shall be sold according to your valuation. All of the firstborn, Exodus 13, whatever opens the womb is God's. So you don't get to give those things since Passover. Nevertheless, no, no, no devoted offering that a man may devote to the Lord of all that he has, both man and beast, or the field of his possession, shall be sold or redeemed. Every devoted offering is most holy to the Lord. God appreciates it. You can give anything else, but you can't give stuff that God already owns. No person under the band who may become doomed to destruction among men shall be redeemed, but surely be put to death. Okay, if your nephew is convicted of a crime and they are, they're on their way to be stoned, 
you don't get to go to the temple and dedicate them to the Lord. <laughs> Their life is already forfeit. God wouldn't put it in there if people didn't try to do that. So we always think that when we, I've mentioned this before, we go to state parks and they have like signs that say, don't fall off the cliff, you know, danger. And you'd think they wouldn't put a sign if somebody didn't try to do that. Um, and some of those signs are hilarious. And we've started to even take photos and collect pictures of the most ridiculous things that we can find because they wouldn't put a sign there if they didn't do it. So God puts a sign in the Bible saying, yeah, if you're doomed to die, you don't get to dedicate yourself to the temple and then get paid for it or, or pay that price or get some sort of uh, stored up value in heaven for your new sacrifice that you just made. So uh, <laughs> you'd think this, the other thing with verse 29, you'd think this is just a weird, obscure sentence that's kind of humorous if you look at it in that light. But the weird thing is this actual thing happens and it's the turning point of the first king of Israel. This is the thing where Saul was on the right path and then he goes downhill because he breaks this law. And he takes, because in 1 Samuel 15, if you want a reference, and that's where you think, wow, this is really cool because that verse being there makes 1 Samuel 15 make sense. So in 1 Samuel 15, verses 3 through 15, it says, now go and attack Amalek and utterly destroy all that they have and do not spare them. Those are God's instructions to Saul. And Amalekites, we'll get to that in 1 Samuel. They were bad people. But kill both man and woman, infant and, and nursing child, ox and sheep, camel and donkey. Saul attacks the Amalekites and he wins. And then, verse 8 of that same passage, he then took Agag, king of the Amalekites, alive and utterly destroyed all the people with the edge of the sword. But Saul and the people spared Agag from best and the best of the sheep, the oxen, the fatlings, the lambs, and all that was good, they were unwilling to utterly destroy them. But everything despised and worthless, that they utterly destroyed. So they kept the good livestock and the king. They took him alive. Now the word of the Lord came to Samuel, saying, I greatly regret that I have set Saul as king, for he turned his back from me, from following me, and has not performed my commandments. It grieved Samuel, and he cried out to the Lord all night, and it didn't do him any good. He gave things that God had already condemned and he started to take those and then tried to break this rule. And this is exactly where the kingship or the effort to have kings rule kind of falls short at the, in their first effort with Saul. Can't give what you don't have. Saul didn't own those animals. They weren't his to give. They were condemned. God knows how people are going to act and they're going to do it. Still, I like the sign thing better. It makes me laugh. Verse 30. Uh, and all of the tithe of the land, whether of the seed of the land or the fruit of the tree, uh, it's the Lord's, and it is holy to the Lord. <clears throat> if a man wants at all to redeem any of his tithes, he just adds one-fifth to it. And concerning the tithe of the herd of the flock, <clears throat> of whatever passes under the rod, the tenth one shall be holy to the Lord. He shall not inquire whether it's good or bad. <laughs> so again, God knows God's people's hearts. When you tithe, you give that first tenth, God owns that already. And he and it's not something you can then redeem. And I think it's gracious in verse 31 that if you have something that's part of your first fruit and you want to redeem it, you sure can. So even your tithe is a voluntary thing to the Lord. So if you want to give this instead of that or this instead of that, God makes a rule to be able to do that. It's a little more costly, but he does give provision for people that want to keep that prized cow in their herd. Yeah, you can keep the prized cow, but if it's a prized cow, it's worth a fifth more. So give God that value and give God what is God's. So why would people try to rip off God? I think it's something you do because tithing is really pretty private. It's something we do in secret. So God knows how that works. So here's where the secret part comes in here. That going under the rod piece, what would happen with a new herd of cows, Brittany, you're from farm country, you know how this works. You take all your calves, right? And any cow that fits under the rod is a calf. So as you're moving your whole herd through this direction, you put a stick or a rod out and the big cows don't, like they don't duck like humans would. They don't do the, what's it called when you do the? They don't do the limbo. The cows just stop at the rod, but the calves can still sneak through. And those calves then, you know that's a first year calves. So then you can count all the new calves that are under, that made it under the rod and you know what your bounty is from your herd that year. So this is our increase in the herd. We've increased by 100 cows. 
And what you do is as they're going under the rod, because you make a narrow kind of channel or corral for them to go through, as they're going under the rod, you just count to 10, and every 10th one is the Lord's. It makes total sense that if you see a really good calf coming through, they got, they're perfect, they're without blemish, they're strong, you can see that this is one of the better cows. Then you kind of maybe hold them back and let another one go in front, and then you let the next one go through. Now, now it's number one, and it's not the 10th one, or something, or vice versa, depending on how you're counting your tithe. So you, it makes total sense that people would do that, and that God's kind of getting the ones that are okay to give to God, but when it says you don't do that, you don't inquire whether it's good or bad, it's basically saying let those cows go through and just count them off and let God take the ones that belong to God. And don't do that. Nor shall he exchange it. If he exchanges it at all, then both it and the one exchanged for shall be holy and it shall not be redeemed. The principle here is give to God what's already God's. The increase of what we have belongs to God. And as things pass over the rod, you just do that. I think this is one of the things that they know what's wicked and it builds this principle of giving to God what's God's and giving to people or the world what belongs to them. And this is my issue with the coronavirus stuff. So I thought it was super relevant. There are some things that belong to God and the government, no matter what the reason they have for it, they can't claim those things. It's not theirs to claim. It doesn't belong to them. This is where the idea of rights came from with the founding fathers and the revolution is that there are some things a government can't and doesn't have the right to take from us. So listen to Matthew and how Jesus handles the thing. So the Pharisees are trying to trap him. They're plotting that they can entangle him in his words and get him to say something that he shouldn't say. So he's on TV. It's a debate. He's got enemy commentators plugging him with questions, trying to get him to say something on camera that's not good. And they sent him to their disciples with the Herodians saying, Teacher! We know that you are true and teach the way of God in truth. Nor do you care about anyone for you do not regard the person of men. Tell us therefore, and this is like what a twisted thing to say to somebody, right? Anyways, that's another, we'll get to that when we get to Matthew. Tell us therefore what you, what you, what do you think? Is it lawful to pay taxes to Caesar or not? But Jesus perceived their wickedness and said, why do you test me, you hypocrites? I love how Jesus is blunt like that. That's grace in truth. Um, anyways, I'm sorry. I'll finish the story. Show me the tax money. So they brought out a denarius, and he said to them, whose image and inscription is on this? And they said to him, Caesar's. And he said to them, well, render therefore to Caesar the things that are Caesar's, and to God the things that are God's. And the principle he gets that from is this last chapter of Leviticus. The things that God owns, God already owns. And if anything else, that other 90% belongs to whoever put their face on it or whoever's branded that cattle. So it's amazing that you can buy a firstborn out of tithe for a little bit extra, and even that tithe becomes voluntary, but the beginning principle is God owns that thing, and you owe something if you want to try to get it back. Give to God what's God, give to Caesar's what's Caesar's. So when a government says that a church can't meet, but a liquor store can, they're, making de they're trying to make decisions about institutions that don't belong to them in the first place. And it's been interesting to sh see the shift at the beginning. I know I'm getting political and I never do that, but I, this one just burns me. At the beginning of the corona thing, thing, they asked pastors and priests to voluntarily close things down for the safety and protection of people. But now the pastors and priests are looking for permission to open their doors again. How did that shift happen? When did it suddenly become the government governor's job to decide if something can open or shut when it comes to faith? At the beginning, it w they were asking permission, but then suddenly they're asking permission, the other group of people, the pastors and priests, are asking permission to open. And, and then the governor of Minnesota says, well, I'll give you permission with these conditions on it. It was never his permission to give. But we shifted so easily as a society to forget that. But that's something God warns about. You hypocrites, don't think that you own what's God's and what belongs to God's. And if the God of the universe in the form of Jesus says hypocrites, when that gets played with, I want to take that seriously myself. What belongs to God? What belongs to the government? And I still love my friend Jeff's take on that. Everything belongs to God. He makes it really simple for himself. So instead of worrying about what goes under the bar and what doesn't, he's just like, it's all God's. I don't own anything. And mentally he just says, my tithe is 100%. 
Everything I make, everything I have, it belongs to God. It's all dedicated. And I think, boy, if you make that kind of vow, be careful what you vow and you better back it up. Like, you better think about that then. And I think he does. Here's the principle. Everything has value to God and God evaluates everything we give. So when we give gifts like, I'll give the Lord my wife's favorite candle, that's a not so valuable gift because it wasn't mine to start with and I don't value it very much. But if I say I'm going to give my eldest son's labor for one year, that has a lot of value because he can lift things and he can kill cattle and stuff, right? So God puts value on everything. And I love the fact that all people have value in God's eyes, even babies, which we know utilitarian-wise are a cost for people that have them. And taking care of a baby takes time and effort. So in God's eyes, still, the babies have value and are ascribed value by the priests and by God. And I think that's wonderful. 1 Corinthians 6.20 says, You were bought with a price, therefore glorify God in your body and in your spirit, because you belong to God. Under this law, you've had a price put on you. God's paid that price, and he's purchased you for the use in the ministry. God sees you as valuable because you're a person, and God values all people. And then I think something. sometimes people become believers, and they think, I don't have much to give, or I don't have a lot of talent, or I don't have a lot of skill, or I'm not as good at this as somebody else and whatnot. And there's truth in the fact that everybody has different levels of ability and different things that they can give. That's true. And that truth is captured here in the Bible. Yeah, when people give their service to the church, some people are more valuable than others. People that know how to do music and sound equipment, you're more valuable than the rest of us, right? Because you know how to use equipment and do things. And that's valuable. And that's your time being given, and God puts a value on that. But God still puts a value on everyone. So it's a lie to say that because I have less value that I'm not valuable because that's not true either, right? So it's a really odd thing in that God, through God's view, he says everyone is equal, but he also says, but I've created people differently and you have different abilities and talents that you can give. The question isn't whether or not you're valuable. The answer to that is yes. The question is, are you willing to give what you have to the church? Are you willing to give what you have to God's service and ministry? And maybe you're not ready to Billy Graham a stadium of people and stand up in front of a room and carry God's word from memory and give an entire sermon off the top of your head. Maybe that's not what you bring to the church, but maybe you know how to work a vacuum. And they both have value in God's eyes. They're both a gift that God can ascribe worth to that builds up treasures in heaven because you're giving what you have. And that's what God asks of us. Nothing that we can't give. We can give anything we want. We can dedicate ourselves to anything we want to in life. And dedicating our, ourselves to the ministry is an option. But I know tons of people, and this isn't meant an accusation. It's meant as an example that all people give their life to something. I know people that give their life to fixing up cars. I know people that give their life to golf tournaments. I know people, and I was just making a list. I know people that give their life, their energy in life, their extra time, their extra talent to making quilts. Right? I know people that do th they give their life to anything that may or may not have value to God depending on how you dedicate it. Right? So giving your life is something humans do naturally. We choose where to spend our life energy. Choosing to spend a portion of that or a, a season of that with the church is a gift that God sees as precious. Because he knows you don't have to. You can be out golfing every weekend. You don't have to be in a church on a Sunday morning that that's a sacrifice of your time, and God gives value to those things. So everything that's out there is good. When Solomon goes through this in Ecclesiastes, you can do all things in, at some level in moderation, according to Paul. So there's nothing wrong with playing golf, but at some level, God really appreciates when you give to him things that aren't necessarily his to start with, that he says he only wants a tenth of your stuff. So if you're going to give above and beyond that, God takes that and adds it to your ledger. And I think that's kind of cool, and some people may not, but it feels really just to me. God owns a certain portion. I can give him that, and we're good. And that's a low-key ministry thing. You don't have to commit like other people. And you don't have to feel guilty if you're not giving 50% of your time like the next person over does. You can give a tenth of your time and your resources and your money, and you can be on God with God. You're on good terms. Praise the Lord. But there's going to be some people that say, you know, instead of fixing up my next car... 
I kind of want to lead a Bible study at church. I want to maybe do a little something extra. Maybe I can join the, the food crew at church and help prepare a, a, a potlucks on Sunday afternoons. And I want to start donating a little more of my time to the church than what God asks me to. And in that, you don't take pride in your works, but it's a way to say I love you to the Lord. And the works righteousness stuff, not good. That's not why you do it. You give it because you'd give it out of the generosity of your heart. So here's the capstone, verse 34. These are the commandments which the Lord commanded Moses for the children on Mount Sinai. So historical narrative, we haven't moved an inch in the entire book of Leviticus. We're still at the base of Mount Sinai. So there's the capstone. And the capstone's about voluntary giving to the Lord because what he's made is good. And God is good and his law is just. And you look at that idea of doing these things we promise. We don't make empty boasts and vows to the Lord. We're careful with our words. And when we say we're going to do something for the Lord, we do it. We make it into action. So now we're all constructed. There's a tabernacle that's built. They have a system of worship for the tabernacle. They have a system of laws. They have a definition of right and wrong. They have a cultural founding document in the book of Leviticus. And as we move forward in numbers, we get to see what happens. Um, but they're ready to move out. They're ready to have an identity and show that identity to the rest of the world. Let's pray. Dear Lord and King, we thank you for the book of Leviticus. What a, a deep and powerful book that speaks to the psychology of worship, uh, the theology of honoring you. And Lord, without the book of Leviticus, we would have no idea who you are and what you expect of your people. So Lord, make our lives to be holy and acceptable to you, that what we give to you, Lord, is a clean house and a clean heart, um, that we get the garbage out and we clean it out of our lives. Uh, Lord, help us to know that you value and put worth on every human life, that everyone's important to you, from baby to senior citizen, Lord. We all have value that you've ascribed to us, Lord, and I just pray that no one that reads your word thinks that they are without value and without worth. Lord, that everyone has something they can give and everyone has a life that you've given them that is yours to start with, Lord. And it's our reasonable service that we give to you um, because you've made it all and you own the cattle on a thousand hills to start with. Lord, help us to not fudge with the measuring stick, uh, to choose good or bad or to swap things out, Lord, or to play games with what we tithe to you. Um, Lord, help that that just to get cleaned out of our heart, that when we give things to you, we do it because we want to, not because we have to and not because we feel guilty, not because we've been pressured into doing it by some other human. Lord, help us to give everything we give to you with a joyful heart, that we just do it because we love you and it's a, it's a blessing to us to be part of what you're doing in your church. In Jesus' name, amen. That. If you found this teaching helpful, insightful, you can support this podcast by sharing it with a friend. Screenshot it, tag it, post it on your social media.